Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. I hope you're packed and ready, because this week we're headed back on the road. The next stop on our tour of American horrors might be the smallest state in size, but what it lacks in landmass, it makes up for in frights. Not only is Rhode Island the birthplace of one of the most notable names in horror fiction, H.P. Lovecraft, it's home to a host of other literary and cinematic legends of horror, too. Take the Biltmore Hotel in Providence, for example, said to be one of the most haunted places in the state, and also rumored to have either influenced or inspired both Robert Bloch's Bates Motel and Stephen King's Overlook Hotel from The Shining. Originally financed by a Satanist named Johann Weisskopf, it's said to have been constructed with satanic rituals in mind. A chicken coop on the roof to hold sacrifices, and ritual rooms in the basement, complete with sacrificial altars. Later, during Prohibition, it was home to any number of illicit dealings and mob murders. Add to that a few suicides, and you've got one hotel, with no lack of permanent residents. Then there's the Perrin House in Harrisville, Rhode Island. If that name sounds familiar, it's probably because that's the house and the family featured in the first Conjuring movie, one of my all-time favorite haunted house movies. Turns out, the story that inspired it is even more unsettling, though. After moving into a 14-room farmhouse in 1971, the Perrins, husband and wife Roger and Carolyn, and their five daughters, 
were plagued by strange happenings. Objects would go missing or move around the house. There were strange sounds of activity from empty rooms, the horrible smell of rot, and piles of dirt that would appear from nowhere in the middle of a clean floor. The kids began to feel and even see ghostly figures in the home, too. And after researching and digging through archives on the home, Carolyn began to learn why. She discovered just how unsettling the house's past really was. It had been owned by the same family for eight generations, and a surprising number of former residents died horribly and unexpectedly. Victims of drowning in the nearby creek, murder, and suicide hanging from the rafters of the attic. Many of the spirits of those who died still lingered in the house, but the most terrifying and dangerous wasn't a member of that previous family at all. It was Bathsheba. You'll no doubt remember her as the main haunt from the movie. Turns out, she was a real person, too, who lived on the property in the mid-1800s. Bathsheba Sherman. Rumored to be a Satanist, she was implicated, but never charged, in the death of one of her neighbor's children. It was her, the parents believed, that was the culprit of the worst of the hauntings. Of course, as in the movie, the famous paranormal investigators, the Warrens, were eventually called in. They continued to visit the family for several years throughout the time they lived there, culminating in a seance performed by Lorraine Warren that resulted in Carolyn becoming possessed by the spirit of Bathsheba. Where the real story deviates from the movie in a somewhat terrifying, if anticlimactic, way is that Ed Warren, unlike in the movie, never did perform an unsanctioned exorcism to rid the family of the malicious spirit. Instead, Roger Perrin kicked the Warrens out after the seance. After witnessing his wife levitate and speak in inhuman tongues, he was afraid for her sanity. With the Warrens gone, the Perrins were now on their own again, and they were far from out of the woods. But due to their tight financial situation, they had little option but to stay in the house. For ten full years they endured, growing faintly accustomed to the strange happenings and unwelcome presences in the house, even if they continued to be harassed and disturbed. That is until 1980, when they were finally able to move to freedom. To this day, many of the subsequent owners of the home have experienced strange happenings and the presence of mysterious entities. Okay, there's one more Rhode Island legend I want to share with you before we move on. The legend of a fire-scarred hermit who likes to murder children in their sleep with long, blade-like fingernails. Did I mention his name is Freddy? No, not that Freddy. But it isn't hard to see why some people think this Freddy is the inspiration for the one that haunts Elm Street. The legend of Fingernail Freddy says he lived with his family deep in the woods of Cumberland, Rhode Island, not too far from Camp Carana. It's a beautiful, treed area near the Diamond Hill Reservoir. But the beauty of nature 
didn't seem to do much to soften Freddy's character. He was known by local residents to be cranky, with a real mean streak. He hated anyone getting close to his land, especially kids who had a habit of playing pranks and vandalizing his property. He'd scare them off with threats of violence, and after a particularly intense run of pranks that included letting his cattle free and having his crops trampled, he made good on his threat with a blast of rock salt from his shotgun. Not fatal by any means, but you better believe a direct hit hurt like hell. Stinging welts rising from their skin and cradling their wounded egos, the perpetrators, three boys from the nearby town, decided to pay Freddy back. They'd had enough of his cruelty, and they thought they'd teach him a lesson. One evening, as the hazy blanket of darkness began to settle over the woods, the boys snuck into Freddy's property. Freddy was in the small barn, tending to the final chores of the day. The boys crept up to the backside of Freddy's home and lit it on fire. At the very least, they'd feel pretty good about causing him some pain and frustration of their own. At most, maybe the house would burn down and Freddy and his family would be homeless and forced to move. Good riddance. But almost as soon as the spark was lit, the fire began to spread. Rapidly. The dry weather and a slight breeze caused the flames to flare, and before the boys knew what was happening, the small home had been engulfed. Panic set in, and they ran off into the forest. Freddy burst from the barn and dashed headlong into the blazing home. Minutes passed, with nothing but the rumble and sputter of hungry flames. And then, slowly, a single figure emerged from the flames. Scorched and smoldering, it stumbled forward, fell to its knees, and then collapsed on the dirt in a burst of sparks and smoke. Freddy was the only person to emerge from the home. His wife and children never made it out. And Freddy was left horribly burnt, alone, and full of rage. He had nowhere to go, no purpose left, except vengeance. The fire dwindled and died to smoking embers and then cold soot and his blackened and split skin cooled and began to heal over. But the seething fire, roiling deep inside of him, only grew. The time it took for Freddy to heal only gave him a chance to stoke those fires, and for his fingernails to grow longer and sharper. Whether they were children or not, he wasn't about to let their murderous deeds go unpunished and he retaliated in true Freddy form. He tracked down each one of the boys and murdered them in the night, clawing them to ribbons with his long, jagged nails. But even with his family avenged, the fire burning inside him never did quite die. To this day, locals in and around Camp Karana know not to wander too far into the woods 
or to let the noise level get too high, because it may cost their lives. Don't make noise at night, they say, because Fingernail Freddy is going to come in and claw you with his fingers, with his nails. There are a few versions of Freddy's legend out there. Some he's known instead as Hotshot Charlie or Hacha Charlie, a man who homesteaded the property centuries earlier. Depending on who you ask, though, Freddy and Charlie are either the same person or completely different ones whose stories sometimes get confused or blended together. But the effect is the same. A frightening creature hiding in the woods, waiting to invade the nightmares of unsuspecting victims. So, whether it's satanic hotels, haunted houses, or tragic monsters out for revenge, Rhode Island might be America's smallest state, but it's big on Hollywood-worthy horrors. I think it's time we dim the lights and start the reel on some of our own terrifying tales. Let's hear some fiction. Our first story for the evening comes from Barry Yedvobnik. Barry Yedvobnik is a recently retired biology professor. He performed molecular biology and genetic research and taught at Emory University in Atlanta for 34 years. He is new to fiction writing and enjoys taking real science a step or two beyond its known boundaries in his stories, with sometimes terrifying outcomes. He had his first two sci-fi short stories recently accepted for publication, The Siren Lure, to be published by Night to Dawn magazine, Spring 2020 issue, and Alien Editors, published in June 2019, by Brilliant Flash Fiction. Alien Editors has been nominated for a 2020 Penn Robert J. Dow Short Story Prize for Emerging Writers. He also has extensive non-fiction science writing experience, including 35 scientific research publications and reviews. He currently writes a Trends in Health column for his local newspaper, the Dahlonega Nugget. In addition to writing, he enjoys photomicroscopy, and sci-fi, thriller, and horror movies. He lives with his wife in the North Georgia mountains. Children of the night, join me for Barry Yedvobnik's Primal Call, a Tales to Terrify original. Emily whispered, momentarily shaking off the seizure. Who wants the first piece? She sang out loudly, and the children erupted into loud cheers of, Me! I know who gets it, she said, turning to her daughter Caroline. Then, as she moved the knife toward the cake, it struck. Emily tilted her head backwards and shrieked loudly. Her eyes rolled up in their sockets, and she raised her arm suddenly, the knife flying from her hand. The children screamed as Emily fell to the floor and shook violently. At this point, her husband, Carl, had reached her. Okay, sweetie. Easy. Easy, I'm here, he said, 
as he looked at the children with a strange smile that failed to comfort them. Then, as the seizure relented, he carried her to a couch. It's okay, Em. Get some sleep. After she settled down, Carl opened his laptop and sent an email to Emily's physician, Kayla Bennett. Dr. Bennett, Emily just had another seizure. I'm sure she'll opt for the surgery now. Thanks again for volunteering, said Dr. Bennett as she checked the bandages on Emily's scalp. We need more patients like you. That's okay, replied Emily. Since I was having surgery anyway, I figured why not help out. I don't know so many people who can't speak when they try to. Dr. Bennett had implanted a device into Emily's brain that would block her seizures. However, as part of a research study, she implanted a second device. This one recorded the firing patterns of neurons in Emily's motor cortex as she spoke words and sentences. She could then translate these firing patterns directly into computer simulations of Emily's speech. Would you like to hear yourself speaking some of the sentences we gave you, and then hear what the computer came up with? She asked. Oh yes, definitely, said Emily. Dr. Bennett took out her phone and played two audio files. The first was Emily reading aloud, and the second was the computer simulation of her speech. For the simulation, Emily had concentrated on speaking the sentences, but she hadn't produced any audible sounds. The computer voice was based solely on the neural firing pattern detected by the implant. Wow, said Emily. That's amazing. I can understand what the computer's saying, but it's not easy. That's the problem, so we're trying to make it better with this study. We want to give a voice that everyone can easily understand, said Dr. Bennett. She glanced at her watch. I've got to go, Emily, but I'll stop by before I head out later today. She gave Emily a gentle hug and left. Two hours later, she received a call. Emily had suffered a stroke and was unresponsive. Dr. Bennett hadn't slept much the last three weeks. She couldn't get Emily off her mind and agonized if the experimental implant was responsible for her stroke. At 6 a.m., her phone rang. It was another physician, her research colleague, Eduardo. Exhausted, she let it go to voicemail and then listened. Hi, Kay. I took a look at the last week's audio outputs from Emily's implant. There's something strange going on. Come by the lab and I'll explain. Kay had decided to leave Emily's implant active to monitor if she tried to communicate. Though she was comatose, her EEG indicated some brain activity. This gave Kay some hope. She immediately drove to the lab where she found Eduardo at his computer. What's going on? she asked. I want you to listen to something, he said as he brought up an audio file. Kay listened closely and heard nothing for a few seconds, when suddenly there was a series of loud, sharp sounds in rapid succession. The pattern occurred repeatedly over a few minutes and then stopped. I have no idea what that is, she said. It doesn't sound anything like speech. Could just be some random motor cortex activity picked up by the implant, maybe due to the stroke. I guess that's possible, said Eduardo, except there's something else pretty weird. Take a look at the timestamp where I stopped the audio. 3.15 a.m., early morning. What's the problem? she asked. Look at the other two mornings when the same sounds occurred. 
They're all within a few minutes of each other. I don't think it's random. And it happened again this week at the same time. How about other activities at the hospital? Power surges or something like that? Asked Kay. That's what I thought. I checked and I didn't find anything. Plus, I asked around to the other labs and nobody else had any equipment problems. Kay, maybe she's... So you think maybe Emily's trying to say something? Asked Kay. I really don't think so, but email me the audios. I'll run them by Tony Sandoval, the linguistics prof I know at Stanford. He may be able to recognize some speech components we can't. Okay, I'm pretty sure these are primate alert calls. I ran an acoustic analysis to confirm it. I know it sounds crazy, but Emily's patterns are a good match. I find it hard to believe, Tony. Couldn't the match be just a coincidence? Unlikely, he replied. Too close for that. I'll send you the acoustic spectrograph so you can see for yourself. Plus, there's something else. Her patterns are repeated many times, and they increase in volume. They sound like an attempt to attract attention, or maybe a warning. Whoa, wait a minute, Tony. Are you suggesting they're an attempt to communicate? That's what I'm thinking. I understand why you may not buy this, but I think something has induced a subconscious response from Emily. At this point, she can't use language or verbalize anything. Her responses are only detectable through the implant. Uh, let's slow down for a minute. You've lost me, said Kay. Where would these alert calls come from? They're a form of communication, said Tony. There's lots of precedents for genetic programming of alert signals in animals, including primates. Some monkey species call out different warnings based on the situation, and these aren't entirely learned behaviors. Responses to a predator like a snake or a leopard are hardwired in their brains. Okay, I get it. Monkeys and apes use them, but humans have a much more refined language. Weren't these calls lost millions of years back in our evolution? Asked Kay. I'd guess that in addition to blocking her language, Emily's stroke uncovered a more primal communication mechanism. There's no reason to believe these alert calls were lost during our evolution. They're just no longer used because of the better language skills of humans. But Kay, the troubling thing is... Emily's attempts to vocalize something urgent. The question I'd be asking is, why? What's making her do this, and why does it occur early morning only on certain days? Let me talk with Eduardo about this. I was thinking it could be interference from equipment at the hospital, but maybe I'm wrong. I'll get back to you. I'd watch her closely for a while, said Tony. Eduardo and I are going to. She said. We'll be taking turns staying in her room. I'm on first tonight. At 3 a.m., as the hospital's late shift was taking over, Kay was reading in Emily's room. A nurse assistant entered and appeared startled to see her. Oh, hello there. I'm Gretchen, she said. I'm here to check on Emily and do some repositioning. I'm Dr. Bennett. I don't think we've met. Uh, that's right, Dr. Bennett. I just started last month from a temp agency. I've been filling in a few days a week for some of the staff who are on vacation. Good. So you've worked this room for a while. I was going to talk to all the staff caring for Emily. How's she been doing during the early morning? Notice any problems? Asked Kay. Oh, no, she's been fine. No issues except the fever that started yesterday. Emily's such a beautiful girl, and what happened is so sad. Do you think she'll improve? I really hope so. If she does wake up, do you think she'll remember anything about the coma? Asked Gretchen. 
Hard to say. Every patient is different. Don't let me distract you from your work, Gretchen. I'm sure you have other patients to visit. Kay watched as she went over to Emily's bed and gently touched her hair and cheek. Hi, sweet Emily. How are we doing tonight? She asked her softly. Let me make you more comfortable. Kay had ordered some tests to find out the source of Emily's fever, but hadn't checked the lab results yet. She quickly logged in from her phone and saw the diagnosis. Gonorrhea. What? A sexually transmitted infection? That can't be right, she thought to herself. She was fine when she joined the study last month, and she hasn't left the hospital. Oh my God, she hasn't left this room in weeks. Kay put down the phone and sat back in her chair. She thought through the possible scenarios and quickly realized that her initial fear was most likely correct. She felt a chill at the back of her neck as she looked toward Emily. Are you okay, Dr. Bennett? You look upset, asked Gretchen. No, I'm fine. I just remembered I was supposed to check in with a colleague on something important. She glanced at her watch. It was eleven. Beep. She glanced at her watch. It was three eleven a.m. She turned away from Gretchen and called Eduardo. Hi, Kay, what's up? Something happening there? Eduardo, she whispered. Can you log in right now and take a look at the activity from the implant? Right now, hurry, please. Uh, sure, just give me a second. Kay looked up and saw Gretchen was combing Emily's hair. Gretchen gave a worrisome glance toward Kay. Instantly, Kay's pulse accelerated and her heart pounded in her chest. Eduardo, she said softly. All right, Kay, I'm almost there, scrolling through today. Nothing going on earlier. Hold on, here we go. Holy shit, yes, right now, lots of activity. The same as before. It looks like it started at 3.07 a.m. just a few minutes ago. Eduardo, I think I know what's going on. Wait a minute, Kay, there's something else here. I am hearing more stuff than we did before. Let me put on some headphones and try to clean up the audio. Give me just a minute. Kay sat down, trying to look calm as she waited. Gretchen had moved away from Emily's bed and was writing some notes. She now stood between Kay and the door. All right, Kay, there are some words here. She is definitely trying to communicate. I think she's starting to come out of it. It sounds like, uh, Dr. Bennett, help. She's repeating this. I'm still in the room with her, Eduardo. I think it's the nurse assistant. What did you say? Wait, Kay, there is more. Get her help. Kay stood up and moved to the far corner of the room, further away from Gretchen. Eduardo, is she asking me for help? Call 911 for me. Okay, no, get out of there. She just said, get Dr. Bennett help. Emily's not asking for your help. She's asking to get help for you. Kay, did you hear me? Get out of there. Kay suddenly felt a presence behind her. She turned and Gretchen was just a few inches from her. She had a disturbing smile on her face as she put her hands over Kay's mouth and throat and forced her to the floor. I have a live one tonight, she said, as Kay struggled unsuccessfully to scream and break free.
That was Barry Yidvobnik's Primal Call, as read by Drew Mallory. Drew Mallory is a research psychologist and interventionist who works on issues that affect vulnerable populations. When not narrating or voice acting, he authors his own dark fiction. Drew currently lives in Belgium, where he works on sustainability issues and, like every good psychologist, is accompanied by his pet rats. Thank you, Drew. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Our second story comes from Shannon K. McCurdy. Shannon K. McCurdy is a queer writer, filmmaker, and costumer. She received a degree in theater from Brigham Young University, which she mostly uses to fantasize about stage adaptations of her favorite books. Shannon currently lives in Florida with her cat. You can follow her latest projects on Twitter at McShanigan. Link is in the show notes. Listen with me to Shannon K. McCurdy's Kevin and the Thing in His Garage, a Tales to Terrify original. Kevin first heard the thing whispering in the garage one Thursday morning as he was leaving for work. He lived alone in a cardboard-colored tract home furnished like a model in a decorating magazine feature. Observing the stations of his routine so perfectly that no single end table, armchair, divan, or houseplant was ever out of place. The thing in the garage was not part of his routine. Kevin froze with one foot in the laundry and one foot on the unfinished cement step in the garage, hand hovering over the button that would lift the rolling door. 
He did not believe in music or television, preferring a house with a silence so overwhelming you couldn't hear yourself think. Nothing should be whispering in the garage. The single light bulb in the garage had burnt out. Every follicle on his close-shaved neck prickled like tomorrow's growth was trying to climb out of his skin. Behind the neatly lined-up trash and recycling bins against the far wall, something caught its breath. Silent. Alert. He thought to himself, There isn't any point in trying to hide. Whatever it is, it's already seen me. Then, because you can't just think a thought like that and dwell on it for any length of time, he got in his car and went to work. Kevin's cubicle was as expertly and impersonally furnished as his house. He could have been featured in a magazine for best cubicle decor. Not that he could have hung an award without recalculating the rigorous spacing between the calendar and landscape photos pinned to the walls. He couldn't unhear the voice. How stupid. You couldn't just get disembodied voices in garages the way you sometimes got roaches or raccoons. That wasn't how the world worked. Of course, he thought, feeling the revelation creep over him like encroaching dusk. The operative word here was disembodied. And he knew that the thing had eyes, because it had seen him. His neighbor tapped on their shared cubicle wall. Morning, Kevin. Rob and Kate and I thought we'd grab coffee at that new place, the one with the patio. Maybe go over the project outside for a change? Want to come? Margie was nursing one cup of coffee already, her magenta lipstick smeared across the rim. Everything about Margie, from her clothes to the stacks of paperwork and snacks in her cubicle, was either brightly colored, smeared, or both. Kevin indicated his own pristine thermos. No thanks, I've got it covered. On the periphery, he heard Rob, Kate, and the rest of the office getting up, jangling keys, talking loudly about deadlines and caffeine fixes. They were all friends. He hated the casual noisiness of their obvious intimacy. Sure, you do you. Margie's eyes tracked across his desk, from the color-coded post-its in the stationary caddy to the hiking trip photos on the wall. Someday he would work in an office one with a door you could politely close on intruding co-workers. Nice picture. Is that the Grand Canyon? Bryce Canyon. I went hiking there last month. Seriously? Why didn't you get a picture of yourself there? I have to see myself every time I look in the mirror, he said. It had sounded funnier in his head. Oh, said Margie. Yeah. I get that. See you later. He watched the rest of the team leave from over the top of his cubicle, and was profoundly grateful for the total, absolute, voiceless silence that swelled up over the office after they were gone. That evening, Kevin parked his car in the driveway and went in through the front door. The change in routine was galling. He hadn't used the front door since he'd moved in preferring the capsular anonymity of his car to shield him through the no-man's land between his garage and the company car park. It wasn't that he was afraid to go in the garage. 
there could not possibly be anything in his garage. And he would have to go in the garage eventually, because he kept the trash collection bin there. It was Thursday, and on Thursday the trash had to go out. Another violation of routine so soon after the first was unthinkable. He grabbed a flashlight from a kitchen drawer just to be safe. The moment Kevin opened the door to the garage, he knew he had made a mistake. The thing slithered around his ankles and into the laundry room so quickly he barely registered the slick brush of its tendrils in time to slam the door shut. It howled in pain. Kevin slammed the laundry room door shut and turned on the hall light. He had dropped the trash bag, and juice leaked from its bruised corner to puddle on the faux hickory vinyl flooring in the hallway. The flashlight beam trembled in time with his shaking hands. He turned on every light in the house. Kevin scanned the street for neighbors before slinking next door to throw his trash in someone else's collection bin. No one saw him. His own garage door shifted and groaned when he passed it, as if the thing were leaning into it. He imagined it stretching from the roots to extend new feelers under the door into the house, searching for a foothold. Then he went back inside to wash his hands and clean the hallway floor. Kevin slept poorly that night. By the time he got out of bed, the thing had taken hold in the laundry room. It clucked and muttered through the hall door while he crept through his morning choreography. No amount of stealth on his part enough to escape its notice. The thing jabbered in crescendo every time he had to pass through the hall. Before leaving for work, he turned on every light in the house and jammed a chair under the door handle. The kitchen drawer flashlight beamed down the hallway at the door like a sentry. You look like you didn't get any sleep last night, Margie said over their cubicle wall. Kevin startled awake at his desk. He had dreamt of the thing reaching long, curling fingers out from under the washing machine, feeling for narrow shadows under the chair in the hallway, grasping for purchase along the baseboards, its word finally clear and comprehensible, terrible in the simplicity of its desire. Coffee? Margie offered him her own lipsticked cup. I think there's something in my garage, Kevin said. He regretted it instantly. Margie leaned over the wall and made loud, sympathetic noises. Her dangling sleeves swiped some landscapes onto the floor. Have you tried poison? Last year we had mice, so my boyfriend put down some chemical, and before you know it, ta-da! Dead mice everywhere. It was horrible, but at least we didn't have a pest control problem afterwards. Kevin scrambled for his pictures. He carefully wiped them with a Kleenex to catch any carpet fibers. Oh, sorry, Margie said. Here, let me help. She vanished behind the wall and noisily rummaged through all her desk drawers, then reappeared rattling a box of mismatched tacks. Totally didn't mean to knock your pictures down. Thanks, I'll do it, he said, getting the ruler from its compartment in his stationary caddy. No, really, Margie said, reaching for one of the pictures. Don't touch that. Honestly, Kevin, it's just a picture. The office was quiet. Everything okay over there? Rob had stood up in his own cubicle and looked at Margie like he was trying to exercise telepathy. Margie shook her head. We're fine, she said. 
Just a little misunderstanding. It's okay. Slowly, the other heads disappeared behind their own walls. Kevin clung to his ruler. Sorry, sorry, he said. Margie was already retracting into her own space. I didn't get enough sleep last night. I'm not normally like this. It's fine, Margie said. Don't worry about it. It was a long time before he could do anything but sit in the relative invisibility of his cubicle, staring at the ruler and the photos. The pictures couldn't stay on his desk, but to put them back up on the wall felt impossible now. Outbursts were unlike him. Margie shouldn't have reached for his pictures. There wasn't supposed to be a thing in his garage. Kevin spent the rest of the day looking up exterminators. The options were endless if you were having a problem with ants, wasps, or mice. He couldn't find anyone who specialized in nebulous, whispering things that lurked in the shadows of garages. Margie, usually chatty all day, didn't speak to him again, and when Rob headed over to discuss a report, his comments were quick and perfunctory. The distance should have felt good. Instead, it made him angry. That night, he parked in the driveway again. Hey there, you just move in? A neighbor jogged in place on the sidewalk while a dog panted next to him. The man's shirt and tiny shorts were soaked in sweat. Like a man in a bad dream, Kevin tried to find his house key, but his fingers felt oversized and numb. I moved in last year, actually. No way! I figured you must be moving your stuff in. This place always seems so lifeless. Never any cars coming or going or anything. I don't think I've even seen you around the neighborhood. The neighbor shrugged. No offense, he added. I put my trash out every Thursday. At last, there was the key. If no one lived here, there wouldn't be any trash to put out. The key fit the lock, but the lock wouldn't budge. Our door gets stuck, too, the jogger said. Any time the weather changes, makes the door frame expand and contract. You gotta put your shoulder into it. I can see that, Kevin said, putting his shoulder into it. It took his whole weight plus a good shove to get the door open, and he was so grateful to have an escape route that he almost forgot about the chair under the laundry room door handle. Let me help you out with that, the neighbor said. He flipped his shirt up over his hairy belly to mop his face. The dog flopped down in the grass. I can manage, Kevin said, but the neighbor was already making jovial it's-no-trouble noises and jogging into the entry with armfuls of bags. A trail of dirt and cut grass in the shape of running shoe treads tethered him to the doorway. The dog sat panting on the step, looking in. Kevin made frantic shooing motions. Nice place. You don't want to leave all the lights on through the day, though. That's really going to run up your utilities. He dropped the bags in the hall. Boxes of string lights, light bulbs, hanging fixtures, and extension cords tumbled out. The neighbor stared. Kevin strained to hear the thing in the laundry room, but it was silent. Was it listening? You hang all this up and you're going to overload the circuits, the neighbor said. I'm fine, thanks, said Kevin. It's just a little dark in here. The neighbor looked around the entry with its glowing ceiling fixture and decorative lamps. I'm fine, Kevin said again. 
Look, man, if you need help with anything... I am fine, thanks. Kevin held the front door open and gestured to the street. Oh, said the neighbor. Thanks, said Kevin. Yeah, sure, any time, man. The neighbor whistled for his dog. It trotted away from the open door, to Kevin's great relief. The thing muttered in the laundry room while he ran extension cords through the house. It laughed when he put the nails in the walls, but it yelped when he plugged in the first roomful of hanging light bulbs, and shrieked when he plugged in the string lights. While the thing howled and whimpered from the laundry room, Kevin ran lights from one end of the house to another, back and forth across every baseboard and ceiling molding, until the entire house was a glaring jungle of hanging electrical cords. When he was finished, Kevin stood at the mouth of the hallway behind his kitchen flashlight. This is my house, he shouted at the door to the laundry room. My house. I live here alone. Just me. I didn't invite you, and I don't want you. You need to leave. He marched through the house all night long. There could be no sleep while the thing was still there, moaning to itself on the other side of the laundry room door. It sounded piteous, but he had no pity for it. What did it expect? To talk at him from behind the washing machine while he did his laundry? Or curl around his headboard and whisper while he slept at night? The house was his. His only truly safe and private place. Nothing and no one would disturb so much as a couch cushion. The thing subsided sometime around two. Kevin dragged himself from the kitchen to the hallway, where it didn't so much as rattle the doorknob at the sound of his footsteps. Sleep, then, until dawn. His bedside lamp had gone out. Kevin toggled the light switch. The lamp did not turn on. He had hung the bedroom with swags of string lights, but they were plugged into a different outlet. Nothing else in the house had gone dark. Probably, he realized with horror, because the bedroom shared a wall with the garage, and the bedside lamp was on the same circuit as the lone garage light bulb. That didn't matter. When had he last changed the lamp's bulb? There were plenty of light bulbs unopened in boxes on the kitchen table. All he had to do was change it. Kevin held his breath while he ran past the hall to the kitchen. The moment he screwed the new bulb in, all the lights in the house went out. Gold and purple floaters swam in his vision. The darkness was thick and silent, and in the grip of its totality, he heard chair legs scrape across flooring as the laundry room door inched open. The thing spilled out of the laundry room and into the hallway. It ran down the baseboards, across the ceiling molding, wrapping itself around the defunct lights like ivy. It curled tendrils around appliances, took root in cabinets, poured itself into the spaces between his couches, tables, and bed frame. Every cupboard creaked open, every closet door slid back. It burrowed into the cushions on the couches and the shirts in his closet, tasting every texture, inhaling every scent. Nothing was sacred to it. Everything was precious. 
it was never going to leave. Kevin stumbled out of his bedroom. Was that a hanging extension cord brushing his face? Or the things grasping filaments? On hands and knees, he crawled down the hall to the flashlight, whose beam served only to throw terrible shadows against the maw of the laundry room door. He could feel the thing all around him, could hear it exulting in his nearness and trajectory. Kevin grabbed the flashlight and stumbled to his feet, contorting around the chair, sobbing. The smooth faces of the laundry appliances reared up where he expected the door to the garage. Impossible to see anything in the flashlight's shaking beam. Then he had the door handle, and the thing breathed a great sigh of relief as he opened the door on its heart and let the heat and baked oil smell of the garage wash over him. Here the darkness was too deep for the flashlight to penetrate. The thing convulsed and retracted around him as he followed the wall to the breaker box. It pled and promised. I'll take everything out of the house, Kevin sobbed. His hand met the corner of the wall. The darkness pulsed. I'll bring in spotlights. He found the edge of the breaker box and tried to open it, but the latch was stuck and his hands were shaking so badly that he couldn't manage it with just one of them. The thing knocked the flashlight out of his hands and swallowed it up. Kevin cried out and clung to the breaker box. Is that what you want? To be stuck in here with me? The thing trilled and hummed. The whole house shook with the strength of its response as the darkness pressed itself to him, feelers twining around his arms and legs, breath hot and humid against his neck. The breaker box came open. All of the breakers had flipped. They felt fused in place under his scrabbling fingers, as immovable as a row of teeth in the jaws of a monster. But he scraped and pulled with all his might and flipped the first breaker back as his nails cracked and bled onto the thing's feelers. The thing screamed. Kevin screamed back at it, triumphant, and reached for another breaker. He could hear cupboard doors snapping shut as the thing retracted into the places where light should not go. That didn't matter. He would find it. He would root it out with flashlights, take the hinges off of doors, burn it out if he had to. He flipped another breaker and another. Closet doors slammed. Furniture scraped against vinyl as it darted under couches or dodged beneath rugs. His house. His silence. His hiding place. He could no longer tell who was doing the screaming, him or the thing. And then there was only one breaker left. He leaned against the wall, heaving for breath. Light filtered through the garage from the laundry room, along with the muted cries of the thing where it hid, burnt and scarred, behind the washing machine. He could hear it weeping from its hiding place behind the trash bins. Last chance, Kevin hissed. His throat was raw, his bloodied fingers ached. Outside, he knew with sudden surety, the sun would be rising. There was nowhere for the thing to go. He reached for the last breaker. It whimpered. No, Kevin said. I know what would happen. It would wait, nursing its injuries, muttering in the shadows under his bed or behind the bookshelves, until he became complacent, let his guard down turned off the lights. 
it would expect to live with him and know him, to take up space in all the places he so carefully cultivated emptiness. Over time, he would come to understand its mutterings. It would ask questions. He would give answers. Make conversation. It would come to know him the way he knew his weekly routine. And in the light of that intimacy, there would be no shadows left for either of them to hide. Kevin struggled to his feet. The garage spun around him, trash bins rattling as the thing pulled them close for cover. You think you want to know me, he said, but you don't have any idea who I am, and I'm going to keep it that way. Here was the box. Here was the last breaker. Kevin closed his eyes against the garage light coming back on and pulled with all his might. In the last moment before the breaker flipped, he thought he heard the thing crooning. It sounded like a blessing, or maybe just a reminder. No matter how many lights he turned on, it had already seen him. That was Shannon K. McCurdy's Kevin and the Thing in His Garage, as read by Anthony Babington. Anthony Babington is an aspiring voice actor who looks just slightly off from how he sounds. From his secret volcano lair in Minnesota, he narrates podcasts and leases his soul to corporate America. He has previously recorded for Farfetched Fables, Starship Sofa, and the Cursed Inn podcast. He can be found on Twitter as at Aleph Baker. Thank you, Anthony. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. If you haven't already, we'd love your support over on Patreon or via PayPal on our website. Tales to Terrify is free to listen to, but it isn't free to produce. Bringing you quality stories week after week is a labor of love and terror for all of us. And a small donation goes a long way. Go to patreon.com slash tales to terrify or donate via PayPal through the link near the bottom of our homepage at tales to terrify.com. Also, like us or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews help keep us on the charts so we can worm our way into the ears of new listeners. Our show is produced by editors Seth Williams and Pete Morsellino, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with assistance from Meredith Morgenstern and Julia Zellman, and theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we feed your fears with more Tales to Terrify.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.